Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Today's show guest is Jonathan Tepper, founding partner and chief editor of Variant Perception. Variant Perception is a global macroeconomic trading and research group which provides a unique view on financial markets. He's also the co-author of Endgame, The End of the Debt Supercycle, which was both a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller. Jonathan is a fellow Tar Heel, having studied history and economics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's also a Rhodes Scholar. He began his career as a hedge fund analyst at SAC, which is one of the most successful hedge funds in the world. Jonathan speaks widely on the global economy and is frequently quoted by CNBC, Bloomberg, New York Times, and other publications. Today, Jonathan shares with us some of the methodology and leading indicators that he uses to forecast trends in the global financial markets. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure. Your work is, uh, is very interesting and, and uh, quite prolific, so we're extremely excited. Before we begin, I know that you've uh, graciously prepared a nice presentation for the audience to kind of break down your, uh, your framework there. Before we begin, maybe you could give us a quick uh, background on yourself and uh, sort of how that led you uh, to the, the point now where, where you uh, are an investor and uh, an advisor. Uh, absolutely. So I uh, started uh, probably about 16, 17 years ago um, in, in the business. Um, I had left Oxford and uh, at the time I, I didn't really know very much about anything at all and uh, ended up working for one year in the Lehman, corporate strat- Lehman Brothers corporate strategy group. I absolutely hated it. I was playing with tar points all the time <laughs> and decided that was not for me. Um, so I left that and ended up going to work at SAC Capital. Uh, learned an enormous amount. I was doing a lot of bottom-up special situations equity research, um, and that was fantastic to get an exposure to a lot of different industries and a lot of different companies. Um, But I I had a degree in economics, and I was always interested in uh, interest rates and foreign exchange. And so uh, a friend of mine was going to run the London uh, prop desk for Bank of America, and this was sort of 05 to 07. And so I jumped at the opportunity, um, and around that time, that was obviously when you know, the U.S. housing bubble um, and the beginning of, or heading into the U.S. recession. And so it was really at that time, I started writing weekly and monthly notes um, for myself to clarify my own thinking, but also to get permission from the bank to be able to trade different things. And in the end, we weren't able to trade almost anything interesting um, beyond uh, <laughs> G7 conferences. So I ended up uh, leaving. But as a part of that writing process, I ended up doing building a lot of you know, my own tools. And I was working with some colleagues and you know, a couple of my colleagues ended up working with me to start Variant Perception. And so we were really building tools for ourselves that solved our own problems and suited our own needs. Um, and uh, at the time in 2009, it was difficult to raise um, money. You know, the, the world was ending. And I thought, you know what, I'll start a research uh, service where people will pay me to build all the tools that I want to be able to invest and, and trade. And so Variant Perception was born out of that. And uh, Variant Perception now has uh, qu- quite a lot of uh, very prominent clients. We don't say who our clients are, but there are some of the top hedge funds um, in the world, in New York, London, and uh, quite a lot of family offices, which are obviously very sophisticated, very wealthy families, and then endowments and asset managers. And so I work with my colleagues 
uh, variant perception. Um, I uh, obviously I don't do most of the work or writing. Um, <laughs> yeah, my colleagues are much smarter than me and do a, a lot of the work. Um, and I'll I'll talk about this actually in the presentation, which is that you know there are a lot of very uh, sort of bright or interesting people out there, and you know we would call them gurus. Um, we are definitely not part of the guru approach. You know, um, just because one person gets one thing right and one financial crisis or one boom doesn't mean that they're going to get the next thing right. And all that we're trying to do is to build a, uh, a robust, repeatable, and scalable um, set of tools that, that work across cycles and geographies. Well, thank you for the introduction. And I think that it's important, uh, the distinction there, and this is something that actually has been a theme of cognitive biases that investors have. Um, and like you said, uh, you know, at the end of the day, investors especially institutional investors, a lot of times when they're investing into a, a hedge fund, they're, they're betting on the jockey, right? Uh, or the horse, or, or so, so to speak. So it's, it's kind of like you're still at risk because at the end of the day, it's one person's decision-making. And you see this happen with a lot of fund managers. They might have, you know, 10 plus 20-year track record, and then they'll have something will happen in their life. They'll get a divorce or some trauma or something, and, and then they'll kind of steer off course. Uh, so by keeping it more systematic, I think that, uh, that definitely will assure investors uh, in the long run. So uh, let's get right to it, Jonathan. Uh, why don't we start the presentation that you have? Fantastic. So here is a uh, presentation I, I put together um, and uh, has quite a lot of the tools that Variant Perceptions built over the years. Um, I'll go uh, through first sort of how we look at the world, which I think is very important. Um, and then I'll go through some specific, uh, and then I'll go through the way we apply the tools, and then I'll go through some specific uh, views and themes that we have. And then towards the end, um, we can uh, have a sort of a, a Q and A, um, if you like, in terms of if there's any interesting points that you thought the presentation uh, brought up. I want to make sure this is as, as useful to the audience as, as possible. So, um, uh, variant perception, basically, as I mentioned. Um, you know, we don't provide uh, research to uh, retail customers. Uh, the research is primarily built for uh, hedge funds, asset managers, family offices. Um, and we really built this for ourselves. And I think that, you know, with many companies, the very best companies often um, are really trying to solve their own problems, meaning that, you know, they encounter a, a problem and then they build a solution. You know, and like Steve Jobs and um, Wozniak, who I'm not comparing myself to in any way, but rather they... They were uh, essentially hobbyists. They loved computers, right? And they wanted to build their own computers, right? And I think that um, generally, if you find something that you really enjoy doing, it doesn't. It's not work. It's something that you know you wake up and you're excited about. And that's really sort of very much what Variant is is about. So one one of the biggest problems I mentioned earlier was that you know I was trying to forecast when the next recession might happen in 2005, 2006. Um, I was very worried about the U.S. housing bubble. I was also worried about very bad mortgage lending. And I thought that one of the catalysts was going to be uh, a recession. Um, the, the question then, of course, was, well, when, when is that going to happen and how do you predict that? And I realized that most economists uh, are focused on lagging economic uh, data. So, for example, most of the data that you'll uh, or, or most of the commentary that you'll read will involve inflation and uh, unemployment. Mm -hmm. Those are very lagging indicators. If you run a small uh, private business, Generally, uh, what's happening is that you know you don't fire your workers just because you have one bad month of sales, right. and you don't uh, likewise raise your prices just because you have one good month of sales. You know, generally, what happens is that you know you wait to see whether this trend is confirmed. So they tell you about the past; they don't tell you about the future. 
And what really matters for investors is what's going to happen, not what has happened. So leading indicators are a key uh, part of the investment process for us. And so most economists just extrapolate out what you know been happening in the past, and they're not looking for turning points. We look for turning points, and we think that's when you can actually have a variant perception or disagreement with the market about you know what is going to happen. Another big problem that we discovered is that a lot of economic data gets revised, right? And you can see that, for example, GDP revisions tend to be massive at turning points. Um, and so if you're a, uh, an investment manager, a portfolio manager, and you're making decisions in real time, you have to do that with imperfect information. And so the question is, what, kind of, what sources of information can you then get uh, pulled together to be able to make decisions um, you know, that, that aren't revised? You, know, you as a trader can't go back and redo your trade six to 12 months later when you get better and more precise information. And so that was one of the real problems that we were trying to solve, which is uh, forward-looking uh, indicators and then indicators that are valid at the, in real time and useful. If, if they're not valid in real time, meaning they get revised, it's not useful. You know, it's, it's all sort of academic. Right. Um, and, and a third sort of problem we wanted, I wanted to solve, which you referred to, is essentially you can end up having a, a guru in investing, or you can have a sort of name in trading. And sometimes people get lucky. Sometimes people, you know, have unique insights. But those those unique insights only matter at a particular point in time. They're not replicable across the business cycle or across market cycles. And so, what we wanted to do was to figure out uh, what tools would work reliably and would not depend on whether I woke up in the morning and had something for breakfast or something different or had too much coffee that day or in a good mm-hmm. mood or a bad mood. Trying to get rid of a lot of the emotion and, and biases. And so uh, all of this led us to, to start building uh, leading economic and leading liquidity indicators to try to provide a lead on changes in asset prices and changes in economic uh, activity. Um, and we care much more about um, asset prices than we do about economic activity. But obviously, economic activity matters more. So the question then is, like, how do you turn um, this into a trade if you have these tools, these leading indicators and liquidity indicators that might tell you something about where the world is going. Mm-hmm. If the world agrees with you, there's no trade, right? That's already, it's going to be priced in. Um, the trade uh, ideas happen when the world disagrees with you. So for example, in this uh, very simple diagram we have, you can see that there's a, uh, you know, we use the liquidity indicators, the leading economic indicators to forecast these turning points where um, things are going to change. And when valuation and sentiment or positioning and um, momentum uh, disagree with us, you know, then there's something very interesting. So, for example, um, last year, one of our main investment themes was long Brazil. And uh, at the time, if you remember in late 2015 and early 2016, everyone thought Brazil was a disaster. It was the front cover of The Economist. They had Dilma Rousseff on. As it turns out, that was near the bottom, you know, whenever something from the front cover of The Economist like that. But um, retail investors generally are wrong at the extremes. And so retail investors have been pulling money from Brazil and from Latin America for almost three years. And so when we talk about sentiment and positioning, it's that middle uh, square, you know, that was extreme, right? So we're looking for these extremes. Valuation is also extreme. Um, The Brazilian stocks looked expensive, but if you looked looked at them on a sixth basis, they were very cheap. And they were back in line with 2002 and, and 1998. Um, and in both cases, uh, the stock market doubled. And uh, if you look at those at the time, you, you also would have been 
uh, insane if you had invested, right? Because you'd have the right crisis in 98 and you'd have the Argentina default and, uh, and devaluation in 2002. So you don't find great bargains unless people think you're an idiot um, buying right. something that most people don't want to touch. Um, and so uh, our leading indicators were turning up. Valuation was cheap. Sentiment was terrible. Um, and finally, momentum started to turn, uh, you know, and that's sort of more timing technical element where we had a lot of technical signals telling us that sort of the, the, the um, change was, was there. And that's how we end up developing investment ideas. Clearly, these work on the opposite, you know, where you find our, and things turning down and, you know, people very bullish and euphoric. So it seems like it's, it's almost the, the very fact that investors look at lagging indicators, it's almost that's contributing almost, it sounds like, to the, the herd mentality of, of market moves, right? I mean, absolutely. So uh, as a, you know, I mean, I've I spent some time on trading desks as well and, and this sort of thing. And, you know, I mean, most of the I feel like most of the data that especially in the U.S. that that traders trade off of are those releases that are all lagging indicators, right? Absolutely. And so, for example, if you look at um, jobs, uh, you know, the job situation was getting worse and worse and worse in late 08, early 09. And uh, it looked like the world was ending. And so everyone, of course, uh, thought that that was uh, terrible. It was a disaster. They kept on liquidating. And if you looked at, for example, um, retail investors, uh, retail investors had extremely high cash levels relative to equities. So, you know, obviously every share has to be owned by someone at every point in time. There's never a time when there's cash on the sidelines or uh, equities are not owned. Someone owns it, you know. And so the question is, of course, who was buying at the market bottom? These were generally longer-term players who were, you know, under-allocated to equities. This would be endowments, pension funds, and so on. But retail was kept pulling, and, and they were in part pulling it because the economic data was terrible, right? And so they're looking backwards, which is the people getting fired. But at the same time, if you looked at the leading economic indicators in late 08 and early 09, they were turning up very strongly, right? The yield curve, for example, and I'll get to what goes into the leading indicators, had already turned up dramatically. And, and money growth was surging because the Fed was responding to the, the crisis, right? Mm. So things weren't going to stay down forever, you know. And that obviously ended up being a fantastic opportunity um, right. you know, with, with uh, great, great investments. So that that really is, you know, if you can focus on the right things, um, it helps reduce the uh, noise, increase the signal, and then ideally allows you to have a, a counter consensus view um, that's right. You know, you don't want to always be uh, counter consensus because sometimes consensus is right, but where there's a disagreement on price and you have fundamental reasons for believing that, that can be a great opportunity. Fantastic. Uh, a, a question, of course, is, well, what, what are leading indicators? Mm -hmm. and what should you be focusing on? Um, we put together for all countries, all major countries, G20 and emergents, um, national leading indicators. And we turn them into one index. That way it's easier to look at, right? So if you look at on the left, we have the U.S. short leading indicator that leads by six months. We also have a longer leading indicator, which leads by 12 months. And then we focus very heavily on financial conditions. So later I'll show some of our liquidity indicators, which are global in nature. But even in the U.S., for example, if you look to the right, you see that we have M1 growth, which is narrow money, and then we have the yield curve index, you know, which looks at how steep or flat the yield curve is. And you can see that that's a two-year lead on the ups and downs in the U.S. business cycle, right? It's extraordinary. Right. And right. so, um, you know, that, that obviously it's not perfect. Sometimes it's a little less and sometimes it's a little more, but it's uncannily accurate, right? Um, um, and so you can see that 
some things like employment and inflation, as I was mentioning, are backward looking. Today, we got the inflation number, right? Inflation generally, and core inflation, is about a year and a half behind the real economy. You know, so it's a year to year and a half. So unsurprisingly, the um, recession ended in June of 09, and the worst of the recession was later late, early 09. And the big deflation scare happened in the summer of 2010. So that's already telling you why there's a deflation scare in 2010, right? It's all these sort of uh, great fear, uh, you know, falling prices, firing workers, all that's feeding its way through the economy. And then you're seeing that in 2010. Today, the lower inflation that we're seeing is because most countries, around, a lot of countries around the world actually have fairly weak uh, growth and recessions in 20, 2015 and in, in early 2016, right? When we were talking earlier about Brazil. It's not going to be surprising that inflation around the world is going to be fairly low today. Um, right. The economy globally has bounced back uh, significantly. Unsurprisingly, um, you know, if you look forward, our leading indicators for inflation are much more positive you know, and, uh, in fact, stable and rising. So um, the, the, those are backward-looking. Money growth and yield curve are fantastic leading indicators, and we use them across countries and then aggregate them uh, globally. Um, one of the things that we, you know, I mentioned the reason variant started was I was just trying to solve a simple problem for myself, which is mm-hmm. how can I forecast recessions and, you know, what reliable things could I look at? And it became very clear to me that if you look at the last four recessions where we have uh, consensus estimates from economists, blue chip economists, uh, nine out of 10 uh, failed to forecast a recession and didn't even see it starting once it had already started, you know, meaning in the, in the first few months. <laughs> no. And I realized that most economists are very bright people. They have PhDs from good universities. So it's not that they're stupid or that they you know, are, um, have no education. Um, the, real, the real issue uh, seems to be that they focus on the wrong things and they focus on a lot of economic data that gets revised, which means that the MBR is great at dating recessions very precisely a year after it's done. But if you're a trader, you know, you don't care when the MBR gives you the dates, right? right. <laughs> you know? It's like, it's, it's long after the battle. And so um, we started building these recession tools and we have 12 separate models. They're built using different inputs and different methodologies. And the reason for that is that every recession is different. So for example, if you look at the 2001 recession, Retail sales never turned negative, right? The consumer kept spending. What you really mm. had was a massive collapse in particularly IT, uh, telecoms, um, CapEx, right? And that, that was a pretty big um, swing and driver in the economy. Um, likewise, the 1990 was a very industrial downturn. So each recession is going to be different. And if you train your models too heavily on the previous recession, you're going to get it wrong. And so you want to have multiple models and multiple mm. things that you're looking at um, to give you a sense of whether it's likely that the economy is in a recession or not. And the proof that these tools work is that uh, variant perception started in March of 2009 officially. But I had been writing my weekly and monthly letters um, beforehand, sending them around to friends and trying to clarify trading ideas. And uh, we were able to call in real time the beginning of the recession in December of 2007. Now, obviously, that's extremely valuable knowing what happened in 2008, right? Right. And so... These tools do work in real time, and then we called the end of the recession in June of 2009. Now, obviously, we'd had some buy signals before that. The market was rallying before June, but many people were still uncertain as to whether the recession was over or not at that time. And so these tools are very useful in real time, and these these are tools that we provide uh, to our clients on a regular basis. Another thing that we focus on even more than economic leading indicators and here, you know, we have quite a lot of these, um, and some lead some things much better than others. 
but here we just have two uh, sample uh, leading indicators um, you know, for, for uh, your, your listeners. Um, we look at global excess liquidity, um, and that's a measure of how much money is in the world that exceeds the actual needs of the real economy. And when excess liquidity is high, um, asset prices tend to rise. And when excess liquidity is low, asset prices tend to go down. And the intuition is the worst times to invest is when the economy is doing really well, inflation is <laughs> right. and when money is coming down, right? So when you're tightening the financial conditions, because that means that there's uh, not enough money to going into financial assets and more of it's going into the real economy. And best times, in, and that's like 1989, 1990, that's like 1999, 2000, 06, et cetera. The very best times to invest is when economic growth is terrible, inflation is coming down, and money growth is surging, right? And then there's far more money that's going to be absorbed by the real economy and it ends up driving financial assets. And so you can see that you know a lot of these, our, a lot of our liquidity turns have, um, I'm sorry, a lot of our liquidity indicators provide excellent turns on the real economy with an advanced read. Also, we look at the global yield curve composite, and we aggregate all global um, yield curves, and they do an excellent job of leading the business cycle and of leading uh, asset prices and profits. Now, earlier we had spoken about sentiment, positioning, valuation, and uh, momentum. And so the question, of course, is, well, how do we do this in practice? Um, there are many different ways of looking at valuation in the United States. You can look at, um, for example, we have the stock market capitalization to GDP, right? That's one of them. You can look at the median PE, the median uh, EV to EBITDA, or whatever metric you want. And so put those together, and it should give you a relative sense of are you on the cheaper side or are you on the more expensive side? Mm. Um, and that, that's sort of a consideration. You look at cyclically adjusted as well, right? And that's why we were talking about Brazil earlier. Um, and there's no right valuation measure. It depends on what sector you're looking at. It depends, obviously, sort of you know, what, what country you're looking at. Um, we also, I mentioned, look at uh, sentiment and positioning. So the, the middle chart uh, is, has signals. And we derive, we've created a lot of signals that are very good. We backtest them, and we know that they work. Um, so these tend to work very well on a three- to six-month basis. Um, and here we're measuring, it's a measure of fear. You know, like how, how are stocks and bonds trading relative to each other, right? Mm. Everyone's buying bonds and selling stocks. Chances are they're, they're too fearful. Right? Right. And, and generally, you want to be buying panic, and you want to, and you want to be selling a euphoria. Um, and on the right, you know, when we talk about sentiment positioning, you can see, for example, this is just one of many uh, positioning measures that we track. This is the ICI uh, breakdown between stocks, bonds, and cash. And you can see that currently uh, we're at the lowest levels of cash ever um, in, in the U.S. in terms of the, this is the investment company institute um, that tracks mutual funds and their allocations, right? So right here, we know that valuation is extremely expensive. We know that um, we're fairly stretched on stock bonds, and we know that cash levels are fairly low, right? So all of these are really useful wow. when we start putting it together. Another thing that we do, um, and we're giving you guys an enormous amount of information, by the way. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can see uh, this, this, this slides right here are extraordinary. But we also started building debt and currency crises um, tools. And uh, you know, one of the things that we like doing with clients is, is uh, educating them. We've educated ourselves and trying to figure out what, what's important and what's not. And so it's always a pleasure to be able to share this you know, with people and then they can incorporate it into their investing process. Um, you know, if a patient has uh, some symptoms and, you know, they all go together, a doctor will look at you and say, you know what, you might have pneumonia, right? And, and it's not one thing, it's a combination of things. 
And right. so what we've done is say, well, what, what do countries look like before currency crises? What do countries look like before debt crises? Find what those symptoms are, create scores, and then we can then figure out, you know, what are the top candidates for a crisis and what are the top candidates, you know, for a, um, a devaluation? And then mm. that's what we put together. And so those help also inform us. Um, liquidity is important, and I mentioned that earlier, because it drives asset prices. And so, for example, you can see that we have what we call our business cycle financing index. Our business cycle financing index is essentially a measure of global financing rates. When financing rates go up, it's more expensive, and you end up with, unsurprisingly, uh, falls in asset prices, uh, weakness in the ISM. And, so, and you can see that that provides a nine-month lead. And so it's obviously very useful, right? I'm talking about leading indicators, something that tells us right. a bit about the future. Likewise, we know, for example, that uh, broader money, and we'll talk later about China a little bit more, but uh, broader money also in some kind of countries is very significant. And you can see that the China credit impulse leads the industrial metal prices, um, and that's the Goldman Sachs um, industrial metals prices, right? So that's, uh, these, these are examples where liquidity leads asset prices. Other things that we track are uh, is money growth in developed markets and in emerging markets. On the left, you can see the emerging uh, to developed ratio. And obviously, that was extremely low in late 2015, early 2016, um, since it's been going back up. And whenever the, our, our indicators tell us that um, developed uh, money is growing faster than emerging, so you want to be in developed. When emerging money is growing faster than uh, developed, you want to be in emerging markets. And so these things are very useful um, to know, and we use our own liquidity indicators that we've built to be able to know when those switches happen. Also, we use our tools to try to understand where we are in the business cycle. So when our tools tell us that we're seeing ups or downs, then we know which sectors you might prefer to be in. So for example, you get uh, the very cyclical sectors are on the left and the less cyclical sectors are on the right. Um, so, so utilities and consumer staples um, tend to be very uh, uncyclical whereas energy and financials tend to be um, a lot more cyclical um, and they move a lot more with the business cycle. Right now, breakdowns in terms of things we like and things we don't, um, and these come from the tools that I mentioned in terms of cyclical indicators and liquidity indicators, and these we update for clients on a monthly basis. Can I, uh, can I just interject uh, for a second, Jonathan? I want to just quickly review the, your liquidity indicators because they sound like uh, a pretty a strong sort of um, signal that you can use. So you said that uh, when excess liquidity is high is a good time to invest. That's when, that's when uh, inflation is falling or money growth is, is, is increasing. Uh, and then conversely, the worst time is when that excess liquidity dries up, right? Yes. Um, so without, you know, obviously without giving away too much proprietary information, how do you determine ex excess liquidity? Uh, sure. So that's a, a great question. Um, for clients, uh, we are not a black box, meaning that we tell clients exactly how we build our indices. Um, and if clients don't understand uh, how we do our work and don't uh, think it makes sense, then they're not going to use it in their investment process. And it's just not going to right. use them. So uh, Variant is not a black box, and anyone who's a client uh, gets to find out sort of how everything's built. Um, and, you know, in order to predict the business, I'm not going to give you every detail, but I will tell you broadly sort of how we think about it. Uh, sure. So basically, you have broad money, uh, which is like credit growth. 
and credit growth. And so going back to the beginning of Variant, I started creating hundreds of charts, you know, and I read a lot of academic research and I thought, okay, the, the academics tell me that some things lead, some things are coincident and some things lag. I'm not sure I trust them, so I'm going to go and check it myself. So then I would go through, right. I would map everything, look at against recessions and see, you know what, this actually looks like it's turning down beforehand. This is not, these are the turning points. I, I figured out, you know, sort of what leads and what doesn't. Broad money generally, which is sort of lending, um, you know, the sort of M3, which they don't publish in the U.S. anymore, but Europe and other countries often do. And in the U.S., you have bank loan growth. That tends to lag the economic cycle, right? And if you think about it from a bank manager's point of view, they're generally lending into the downturn because they're not even aware the downturn started, right? And they're right. generally cutting back on credit when the when the upturns already happened, and they're not even aware that the upturns already happening, right? They'll, they'll find out a little bit later. So broad money doesn't lead economic uh, business cycle, and it doesn't lead asset prices. Um, China is an exception because it's very much a managed economy, unlike most of the rest of the world. You know, where if China wants to get the economy pumping, you know, they'll go out and do more loans, right? Um, right. And that's sort of uh, you know a big influence. But broadly speaking, when, when we talk about excess liquidity, we're talking about narrow money. We're talking about cash. We're talking about mm. uh, not M three. We're talking more about you know monetary base M one, and uh, that's sort of how, how we look at it. And then a lot of what we do obviously is aggregate that at an international level. You know, so Got it. just on on one country. Um, and then you have to do make a few changes to it, obviously, because um, you know, it, it changes over time, and so you want what you're trying to capture are turns as well. And that's one key ingredient, which is that we're not forecasting levels, we're forecasting uh, changes and turning points. And so, you know, we do manipulate the data a little to try to find those turning points a bit better, right? And likewise, um, almost all of the data that we've got, we tend to smooth. You know, you, you, you want to get more signal, less noise. Um, and so excess right. liquidity, we're looking at narrow money. And, you know, as we're, uh, you, you basically take narrow money minus inflation. So you're trying to find real narrow money, you know, and then minus economic activity. And that's like a very useful way of, of thinking about it. Very interesting. Um, well, thanks for sharing. Uh, okay, well, we can continue. You were talking about on asset allocation. Yeah, so earlier I was talking about how, you know, like cyclical rotations, how our indicators are helpful. I was talking about how allocating different countries or EM, DM, how a lot of our, our own tools are helpful. And, and now, uh, you know, what we can do is go around the world a little with, with some of the um, investment views we have right now, uh, what they're telling us. Um, and then uh, we can talk a little bit about China, so Hong Kong, which obviously is very, very much of an interest uh, for your part of the world. Um, and, uh, you know, we can go into as much detail there as you like. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we have a lot of leading indicators, and we try to find uh, not only our own indices, but then we find a lot of relationships that lead. So in the case of uh, Australia, for example, we know that building permits have been turning down. So the housing market's doing very well, but the number of uh, houses being built has been going down uh, in terms of the, the plant and the approvals. And the reason building permits are very important is that they get, you, know, you, get, you get a permit to build, and then that gives you a very long advanced read on what's going to happen in the economy because you then have to go hire the workers, you have to break ground, mm. you then have to buy the materials. When it's all done, then someone has to move in, they have to buy a washing machine and carpets. And so it's giving you this very long you know, lead on what's happening. Um, and so building uh, permits have been turning down. Likewise, if you look at um, surveys in Australia in terms of time to buy a house, right? Um, that leads by about 12 months house prices. That's been turning down. Um, also, uh, if, if we're looking at um, 
other, other measures of uh, sentiment um, regarding housing, uh, you can see that those are, are trending down. So while things are, are fairly positive right now in terms of prices, it's, it's um, when you look at Australia, 7% of all employment is residential employment, right? It's very high mm. um, by international standards. And so these people are going to need to find new jobs and, you know, they're, they're probably not going to be able to. Also, housing has a very big multiplier effect. And uh, when you look at, at most countries, uh, housing uh, led the U.S. downturn, Ireland, Spain. So whenever you see that big peak in downturn, it tends to have pretty big economic ramifications. Um, lately, we've been seeing uh, a tightening and uh, loans have been getting more expensive, particularly for interest only. Wages have been pathetic. They've been close to zero. And then when you look at real wages, so minus inflation, they're actually negative. And that really only happened in 2009. So it's pretty bad uh, for the Australian worker and consumer. Um, and they obviously have uh, a, a big uh, relationship to, to China. Um, and so a lot of our Chinese indicators, which I'll speak about later, have been, have been rolling over. And so uh, that you know, has a negative implication given the Aussie dollar is very highly correlated to terms of trade. And one of the big inputs in terms of trade is obviously their export basket of iron ore and coal to, to China. Uh, when we look at the UK, this is something we've been writing about as well, which is we have uh, house, and, it's, and today, in fact, house price data came out in the UK, you know, and it was terrible. Basically, um, growth is uh, turned down, and that was something that we've been uh, writing about for some time. So uh, if you're looking at a variety of measures, those have been very poor. And in the UK, whenever you see uh, housing turned down, it, has, it provides a very good lead to the turns in consumption and retail spending, right? And at the same time, uh, real wages have been very poor and savings rates are extremely low. So people have been dissaving in order to finance consumption. Now, when that reverses, it's almost always been associated with recessions because people just stop spending and start rebuilding their savings. And so that's pretty bad. Um, emerging markets, we've been very positive all year. Um, you can see that chart on the left. Um, we've been writing about it uh, favorably for our clients. Um, we think that that's going to turn based on some of our indicators. It has not turned yet, but when it does, obviously we'll be flagging that to clients. And then you can see that the global economic surprise uh, is you know, rolled over, which is negative with a lead for emerging markets. Um, and uh, when you, you know, that tracks the global diffusion. Um, and then obviously some of our liquidity measures for emerging markets have also um, rolled over. Um, we do look obviously on the country level and we have uh, some leading relationships. Um, that we have by country, and uh, Turkey has been one of the countries that we've been most positive on uh, for the year. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the different leading indicators that we have for Turkey have been very positive, and it's been one of the best performers for the year. Um, Japan, uh, you know, is an Asian theme we've been writing about. We've been very positive on Japan most of the year. It has not performed as well as some of the emergings that we've been positive on, but, you know, it's uh, one where most of the fundamentals have been improving, um, and where valuations are still relatively cheap compared to a lot of the developed uh, markets. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be able to share our tools. And, you know, um, obviously I uh, can't see anyone in the audience uh, from here, but, uh, you know, if, if anyone does work at an uh, institutional uh, fund uh, or, or company, family office, um, obviously we'd be thrilled to be able to share our work in a lot more detail. You know, and go into a lot of this, our, our clients are hedge funds and institutions. Um, we have tools um, and signals that we built for everything. So, you know, here this slide talks about industrial production. Um, 
you know, we have a lot of leading indicators for industrial production in the United States, uh, and not just the United States, but obviously Europe, China, and Japan as well. And a lot of these have uh, rolled over. So um, we're, we're very definitely past the, the peak in terms of um, industrial growth. And a lot of the industrial stocks have done phenomenally well, right? So from a contrary standpoint, earlier you were talking about Brazil, buying it when things are turning up. You can likewise find things that have done really, really well with valuations very stretched where our indicators are rolling over. And those are sort of useful trading opportunities. Um, when we look at China, there's a lot of different liquidity indicators and economic indicators we look at. Those are rolling over. And so they tend to have a very high correlation to uh, cyclical uh, prices, like the Baltic Drive, for example, um, iron ore companies, like you know, BHP, for example. Um, obviously, they don't just do iron ore, but that's one of the main drivers, and copper. And so a lot of our China indicators um, have uh, rolled over. Um, also in China, financing rates are extremely important. So when you see an increase in the cost of funding, it, it tends to um, diminish economic activity going forward. When you see cuts in, in the funding rates, um, it, it tends to spur economic activity going forward. And so for China, a lot of the liquidity indicators that we look at and the funding rates uh, are um, head, will be headwinds on uh, monetary policy, uh, sorry, on, on economic activity going forward and, and asset prices. Um, and when we look at the United States, earlier I showed you some of the cash levels. Uh, on a lot of different surveys, retail have extremely low, low levels of cash. And generally this does a very good job, not of predicting uh, short-term returns. You know, so you could have very positive three, six-month returns on equities, but it's very good at predicting longer-term returns you know, on a five- or ten-year ten basis. And so obviously it's very important to understand so where you are in that cycle. Um, also, when you look at the United States, you can see that margin debt is extremely high, that hedge fund gross leverage is very high, or that earnings yields are very low. These are all things that will represent headwinds, not for the next month or two or three, but rather further out. Um, deleveraging events tend to happen when leverage is very high, and they contribute to uh, steep declines and drawdowns. And then the earnings yields, obviously, are, are low, and you can see that that's pushed forward one year and does a decent job of flagging out the ups and downs that you see in equity indices. Well, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for the presentation. It was very uh, it was insightful, and I know that it was quite high level, but it's still a lot for probably a lot of the audience members. Um, just real quickly on, on China, uh, when, you, when you're building your models, the data that you're using, how confident are you, you know, there's been, I mean, people look at different types of data, and particularly when it comes to China, there's been some question to the legitimacy of the data and the sources and this sort of thing. How have you found that process? Have you found it challenging? Uh, or how have you just verified your, your models? Sure. So that's uh, probably the first question we get um, when people ask about <laughs> China. Um, because the uh, statistical uh, releases in China often make little sense, and you know it takes uh, other countries a long time to get their data together. China has it almost immediately. It's you know has relatively low volatility. Um, there's all sorts of strange things that uh, happen. Um, but as I mentioned before, we don't tend to look at coincident and lagging economic data. Um, so I really don't know or care where GDP is, mm. um, and it's not really something we look at. Uh, likewise. Um, a lot of the other data uh, that, that we look at is not particularly very important to us. A lot of the things that we look at tend to be much more on the market side. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about having unrevised inputs into our models. Um, and some of the best places to find these inputs is in market prices. And so mm. market prices themselves can tell you a bit about the future and about other asset prices. 
And so we tend to find things that there's no revision to it, right? So for example, if you think of the US, um, the yield curve is a great leading indicator. Everyone ignores it. Right. Um, and every day there's a close. You can you know, uh, go online, find out where the yield right. curve is, and it's not gonna be revised the, the next day. So right. <laughs> likewise with China, there's a lot of prices that don't get revised. And they do tell us about sort of the state of financial conditions and monetary policy and growth, future growth in China. And that's sort of how we build our, our leading indicators. Interesting. Um, I think that what you, the solution, not, uh, the, the service that you provide at Variant is, um, is, is definitely uh, very useful and valuable. And as an investor, regardless of if you're institutional or you're a, you know, individual or high net worth, you basically, the, the goal is to build your conviction level based on a number of tools. And uh, it sounds like what you guys provide is a very valuable one to sort of uh, to give, to forecast some of these trends that are happening um, in global economies. For our in institutional uh, investors, do you provide any sort of bespoke work for them or is it all just sort of, uh, if you, you know, sign up for an engagement with uh, Variant, it's just, here's what we do, here's what you get. Sure. So uh, Variant is not a consulting group in the sense that there's not 100 consultants going off doing 100 bespoke projects for clients. Um, I, I never, when I started it, it's not what I wanted to do. But what we do do is provide uh, very detailed monthly reports. Um, so for example, they go to all clients. And so the first week of the month, there's a leading indicator watch, which goes through all those indicators in a very beautifully laid out way that's intuitive. And then the second week, there's the monthly, which is all the investment ideas that flow from those uh, insights. And, and then uh, whenever the tools point us in a certain direction, then there's big thematic pieces. So for example, we've done quite a few big pieces on China over the years mm -hmm. when our tools have uh, alerted to us to cyclical ups and downs in China. And so all those go to all clients. And then obviously there is more of a bespoke um, sort of speaking to clients, presenting to clients, and that's where we'll really find out what the client needs and wants and, and speak to them. But we wouldn't go off necessarily and do a, uh, a project for them. What we'll right. try to explain to them how the tools that we've created might, be, uh, might suit their, their needs in terms of answering specific investment questions or trades they have. And then uh, I imagine at some point, or, and you might already be working on this, but... Um, if I was a client at some point, I would probably be like, Jonathan, just take my money and, and, and do it for me. Uh, has, has, has that happened yet? Or, or is that even something that you're thinking about doing? Uh, yes, very much. So in, in a way, Variant started uh, by accident where, you know, we, I'd left the prop desk and be building tools for myself to trade. And uh, we ended up starting a research service uh, really just because we wanted to build our own tools. Um, but we always knew that what we wanted to do eventually was manage money. And uh, obviously, mm -hmm. we don't want to be conflicted in any way, front-run clients, and so that's not really what we want to do. But a lot of family offices have asked us, well, if you are so smart, why aren't you managing money? Um, and <laughs> if your tools are so good, why are you not um, you know, right. applying them systematically? And so what we have started doing is uh, we've created a systematic uh, set of strategies. We've got four strategies. We've now put our own money behind it. Um, and the, this is essentially answering the need of family offices and endowments to be able to create, you know, if we're telling you that our tools work to pick the best countries to invest in, then this, we have a country selection strategy that allocates mm. money to emergings, developed and picks which emergings or develops to, to allocate money to. Um, and the, the returns are, are very good. And, you know, to, uh, to, to investors, you know, who, who want to put money behind it, obviously will now start to, 
um, to, to take money in. We, we've been, we launched these a couple months ago, but we've been working on them for over a year, year and a half um, in terms of systematically doing it. And we're not going to front run clients. These are all systematic, meaning they're all run off of a model. It's not like we put out a report recommending Brazil and then buy, <laughs> sorry, buy Brazil and then put out a report recommending Brazil. Right. We're right. saying our liquidity indicators turned up. That makes Brazil very attractive, you know, and, you know, and we obviously have more tools than that that go into the asset management process, but, you know, it's very systematic. And so uh, that is something that uh, we will be uh, rolling out. It's just started. Fantastic! It's exciting, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing you guys uh, uh, and your and your growth. So, uh, Jonathan, thanks so much again for your time. Uh, you know, lastly, for those potential clients that might want to learn a little bit more about you uh, and the work that you're doing over at Variant, where's the best place that people can find you, follow you, connect with you? Absolutely. So, our website, uh, variantperception.com. Um, there's a request information tab. Uh, go there. Drop in your details, uh, and then the, the sales team is great at getting back and getting in touch, um, providing you know uh, sort of uh, pieces on how we look at the world, some of our latest research, uh, having a conversation about what you know what a potential client might need, and uh, that's the very best way to do it. We're also on Twitter. Um, we do tweet uh, charts uh, regularly, um, you know, with a lot of ideas, um, and uh, that's one great way to sort of you know get some of our ideas out there, but also just connect, you know. And, and meet new people in the financial world so fantastic well thanks again jonathan and uh, we appreciate your insights thank you so much it's been a pleasure all right i hope you enjoyed today's episode all the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at J. Kimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.